This is James Coover with K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District with your extension crop report. In the spring, herbicides on growing wheat fields require a close look at timing and stage of plant growth. Wheat goes through a lot of stages in a relatively short period of time in the spring, and many herbicides have physiological restrictions on what stages they can be applied. For the most part, herbicide restrictions in other crops like corn, milo, and soybeans are based upon EPA and KDA regulations. In wheat, the growth and yield of the plant itself depends on proper timing, and the timing of it all has little to do with calendar dates. Wheat planted in the fall will be slower going in the spring and will take longer during the spring tillering stage. Of course, it all depends on how warm the spring is and soil moisture. Nothing exemplifies this more than the use of 2,4-D in wheat. 2,4-D is labeled in wheat from the full tiller stage which is about when the leaf sheets start getting longer, to prior to the boost stage. If sprayed too early, 2,4-D can slow down the tillering process. If sprayed too late during the boot stage, it can trap the wheat heads in the boots and will malform the heads. Agonomically, we would say this is from Feeks 4 to Feeks 9, but wheat can go through these stages pretty quickly in a warm spring. Another pre-boot herbicide is NCPA which can be sprayed earlier than 2,4-D at the three-leaf stage, so it is safer in the earlier time frame. That being said, both 2,4-D and MCPA come in different esters or neem formulas and can have different risk. Prior to the application and restriction window of 2,4-D, dicamba can be applied from the two-leaf to the jointing stage of wheat. After jointing, dicamba can cause the wheat to lay down and significantly hurt yield. Other herbicides to use before jointing include Agility SG, Olympus, Outrider, Powerflex HL, Pulsar, and Rave. The Clearfield and Coaxium wheat varieties have pre-jointing restrictions on their own associated herbicides as well. Some herbicides have some restriction up to the flag leaf emergence, like Affinity, Ally Extra, Express, Harmony, Culex, Supremacy, and Wide Match. The new herbicide, Pixario XC, is also labeled from the second leaf to flag leaf. There aren't a whole lot of herbicides that can be applied after the flag leaf and boot emergence. Hopefully though, by that time we should be more concerned about fungicide applications. Information and report came from K-State Weed Specialist Sarah Lancaster. Any herbicide trade name mentioned or excluded does not imply endorsement or not approval. As always, the herbicide label contains the rules and use restrictions. Please give me a call if you have any issues in your wheat fields at 620-724-8233. This has been James Coover with your Extension Crop Report. Next up, we'll have Wendy Powell, Livestock Production Agent for the Wildcat District. Hi, this is Wendy Powell, your Livestock Production Agent with the Wildcat Extension District. Livestock Risk Protection, or LRP for short, is an insurance product that pays out when market prices for feeder cattle are lower than expected. For example, a producer is calving in April and planning to sell at weaning in October. Right now, the expected price for feeder cattle being sold at that time is around $194 per hundredweight. This producer can purchase an LRP policy, also known as an endorsement, for prices ranging from the expected $194 to around $174 per hundredweight. If the actual price in October is less than the price the producer endorsed, the producer will receive a payout to make up the difference. Just like with other insurance policies, 
producers pay a premium for the endorsed price that LRP provides. Higher coverage prices have higher premiums. Because of recent increases in government cost share, LRP is now more affordable for the producer. The U.S. government will share half the cost of the lower endorsed price insurance and 35% of the highest levels. Premiums vary daily and can only be provided by an insurance agent. Last week, premiums ranged from $1 to $7 per hundredweight. The highest coverage prices have a higher cost because it's more likely that actual prices in October will be below $193 per hundredweight than the chances of the market being below $174. The premium cost for the lower price is less and reflects the smaller likelihood of a price drop below the endorsed price. Accordingly, any payouts for the higher coverage prices will be larger. Given the inflation and uncertainty in today's economy, many producers are cautious of additional expenses. Is the premium worth the revenue guarantee? Is the premium cost of $6.57 per hundredweight worth the guaranteed revenue of $193 per hundredweight? Or is $1.81 per hundredweight premium worth a guarantee of a $174 payout? Another perspective would be for the livestock owner that knows their break-even pricing or has a target price. Are current LRP coverage prices and premiums sufficient to help a producer realize that goal? Is the break-even price less than the coverage price minus the premium? Another way to look at this is to compare LRP to existing expenses that lower production risk. For example, bovine respiratory syncytial virus and bovine viral diarrhea both cause illness, reduced performance, and even mortality, cutting profits. Vaccine costs, not including labor, for pre-weaned calves is around $2 per hundredweight, which is comparable to LRP premiums. For more information, give me a call at the Labette County Extension Office, 620-784-5337. Thanks, Wendy. And now, here's David Scrantz, Natural Resource and Diversified Ag Agent, with her report. This is a David Scrantz, one of the Agriculture and Natural Resource Agents from the K-State Research and Extension Wildcat District of Crawford, Labette, Montgomery, and Wilson Counties with your K-State Research and Extension report. If you are thinking of raising chickens, you should first consider the following questions. Are there city ordinances or homeowner association restrictions that restrict raising poultry in the location being considered? Is there a source of feed available for growing the type of chickens you want to raise? Is the time and or manpower available to care for the chickens? And who will look after the chickens when you go out of town? Is suitable housing available for the flock size you are considering raising? If you plan to use your new flock as a source of income, is there a market for the product? For example, if you were to raise laying hens, is there a local market for eggs? Are facilities available for processing broilers or would you be able to process them yourself? Once you have considered the previous questions, the next step is to choose which breed you are going to raise. K 
Chickens available today have been genetically bred for specific purposes. For example, meat birds have been bred for increased meat yield and improved feed conversion rates. They usually will not lay enough eggs to make it economically feasible to keep them beyond the broiler fryer age. Likewise, layers have been bred for increased egg production and smaller bodies. They will not grow rapidly enough to make good meat producers. There are some dual purpose breeds available. With these breeds, it is sometimes desirable to process the males for food and keep the females for egg production. The breed should be selected for the purpose desired. Most hatcheries can determine the sex of day-old chicks and will separate males from females if requested. Once you have decided what type of chickens you want to raise, next you will need to determine if you want to buy chicks or adults. Purchasing chicks from a hatchery is a common way to get birds for either meat or egg production. Purchasing chicks from a hatchery that participates in the National Poultry Improvement Plan will ensure that the birds have tested clean of certain diseases or have been produced under disease prevention conditions. Additionally, chicks can be purchased from various farm supply stores. Often, there will be options to purchase straight-run chickens or pullets. Straight-run refers to just hatched and will result in approximately half females and half males. From the K-State Research and Extension Wildcat District, this has been a Dave Enstrance with your K-State Research and Extension Report. Thank you, Adavin. And now, here is Jesse Gilmore with his report. With K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District, this is Jesse Gilmore bringing you this week's edition of the Hork Report. St. Patrick's Day just passed, which means it's time to get potatoes in the ground if you want to try growing them. When planting potatoes, use seed potatoes instead of potatoes you buy at the grocery store. Seed potatoes are confirmed disease-free and will have more starch in the plant, so they will grow as fast as the warming soil temperatures will allow. Cut seed potatoes into pieces that weigh about 2 ounces and have multiple eyes, and give them 2 to 3 days to form a protective coating. After this protective coating is formed, you can plant them in the garden 1 to 2 inches deep and 8 to 12 inches apart in the row. New potatoes are formed above the original seed, which can cause them to emerge from the soil. Soil should be mounted at the base of the plant to keep the sunlight from hitting the new tubers and creating a poisonous substance called solanine. While it won't kill you, this substance will likely make you ill in smaller doses. It can be found in higher concentrations in green potatoes, so inspect your harvest carefully before consuming. Potatoes are the tuberous root of the species Solanum tuberosum, which is in the same genus as tomatoes and eggplants, and the same family as peppers. Pests that affect these other plants also have a chance of affecting potato plants, especially the black flea beetle. In addition to the generalist black flea beetle, potatoes also have a specialist predator, the Colorado potato beetle. 
This destructive pest will appear on the plants as a reddish-orange larva with black spots down the sides, or as a tan and black striped beetle consuming the above-ground foliage. While spraying to control this pest might be the gut reaction, there are three effective methods of control that don't involve spraying and demonstrate the power of integrated pest management. First, place straw mulch around the base of the plants. Not only will this help delay the emergence of Colorado potato beetle adults, but it can also serve as an additional cover for any potatoes that might pop up above ground level. Second, select early developing potato varieties. The faster a potato develops, the less impact the feeding damage caused by the Colorado potato beetle will have. Lastly, rotate to other non-solanaceous vegetable crops. This will eliminate a major food source for the beetle and keep the population from spiking. If you are having trouble successfully growing potatoes, your soil is probably to blame. Potatoes are one of the few garden vegetables that need soil pH in a specific range in order to grow, with success dropping off significantly once pH rises above 6.5. If your soil is more clayey, it becomes harder for potatoes to expand, and wetter soil invites rot. You can substitute sweet potatoes into the garden if site characteristics are unfavorable for Irish potatoes, as sweet potatoes will grow in almost any natural pH and are slightly more resistant to rot. If you're unsure what your soil pH is, Bring a soil sample into one of our offices and we can test for pH levels to see if your soil is too alkaline or if there is another site characteristic that could be inhibiting potato growth. For more information on today's topic, contact your local extension office. I can be reached at 620-724-8233 or by email at jr637 at ksu.edu. Once again, this has been Jesse Gilmore bringing you this week's Hort Report. Thank you, Jesse, and thank you for listening to K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District Ag Team on KGGF 690 Radio.